Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is Ken Liu. Ken is a multiple Hugo award-winning American author of science fiction and fantasy. His epic fantasy series, The Dandelion Dynasty, is the first work in the silk punk genre, which we will be discussing a bit later. His story, The Paper Menagerie, is the first piece of fiction to win three genre literary awards, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the World Fantasy Award. A published finalist in 2003 with his story, Gossamer, that was the year we had an event in Beverly Hills and Chick Corea performed, plus we had three grandmasters of science fiction in attendance, Robert Silverberg, Fred Pohl, and Hal Clement. Ken also consults and speaks publicly on various subjects such as cryptocurrency, futurism, implications of new technologies, and science fiction, virtual reality, and sustainable storytelling. Hello and welcome, Ken. Hello, John. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. This is, um, unfortunately, I had, I had to be reminded of your prowess in the field of uh, science fiction by several staff who, who love reading science fiction. They said, you've got to interview Ken. You've got to interview Ken. And so um, I, I kept on saying, you've got to interview Ken. So then <laughs> well, I, that's on my thanks to them. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, so Kim was definitely continuously lobbying, and she's in Canada right now at a convention, but she said to make sure to say hello to Ken. Um, she really wished she could be here so she could wave at you, but anyway. Well, we we'll do a virtual wave at each other. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have so many different questions. So I guess to begin with, which is the most immediate recognition of your name going on right now is the Hidden Girl itself is part of a package to AMC. It's a set of singularity-based stories that form the basis of Pantheon. So a little bit about that. I had to, um, I really enjoyed, I'd listened to the audiobook. And so I listened to all the various Pantheon stories there and it's, and it's amazing. So I guess all these stories around singularity and you consider that a prediction or a warning or, or how do you see that? Because it's, it's <laughs> scary. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So uh, just to frame the, the stories a little bit, the stories that form the base for Pantheon, the new TV show from AMC, um, are found in my second collection, The Hidden Girl and Other Stories. And like you said, John, they are a set of stories related to each other in the same universe about singularity, about the singularity. Um, and of course, the part of the singularity that the stories are most interested in um, is uh, the idea of UIs or uploaded um, intelligences. Um, and the idea here is it's not artificial intelligence, which is about making computers thinking like a human. Uh, UI is more about uploading consciousness uh, of a human being or our brains, essentially, uploaded into um, the cloud so that there's a hardware upgrade for consciousness. Now, this is a very old idea in sci-fi, and it's a very old idea in technology circles. Uh, if you talk to folks in the tech industry who are enthusiastic about this concept, it's always about a couple of decades away. So I don't particularly want to focus on whether the concept is practical or it's likely or whatnot, because that's actually not the part I'm interested in. Right. The part I'm interested in, uh, as always, with sci-fi is what does this science fantasy, in, in essence, tell us about who we are as human beings? Like, mm -hmm. how do we find out who we are? I mean, to me, this is the core appeal, sci-fi and fantasy. It's It's you transform the world as we know it into something completely different via technology or, or magic. Um, and then now, because of the way you've switched uh, the world, it's like applying a filter to reality. Now you're highlighting all the parts that make us human and, and all the parts that remain unchanged despite the complete change in circumstances, now you find out who you really are, you know, in the same way that you reveal your character in crisis. Um, mm -hmm. Humanity reveals what makes us human when right. 
cataclysmic change occurs. That's what the singularity uh, is about to me. And that's what appeals to me about, about these stories. That's great. Now with, just to make sure for people who don't understand a little bit, if you could just briefly discuss the concept of singularity. And also for yeah. those who don't know, Pantheon was the house of the gods from what Greek, was it? Yes. Yes. The Greek, the, the home of the gods. And so that give you a more idea of of how his stories view these uploaded intelligence, these AIs. But anyway, um, just briefly describe yeah. the so singularity. The singularity is this concept in projecting human progress where, um, so as we know, technology is progressing and computers are getting faster and faster and we're making AI to be capable of more and more tasks that used to be thought of as the domain of humans only. Um, the computers are, for lack of a better term, getting smarter every single year, uh, and Moore's law still applies, and, and it's just getting faster and faster at an exponential rate. Whereas human evolution, on the other hand, is still occurring at the same steady, slow pace that's always occurred at, right? So if you put those two trends together, the computers are getting smarter exponentially, and humans are evolving at the same rate we've always evolved. At some point, it appears that um, computers will become at least as smart as humans, and then shortly afterwards, exponentially smarter than humans. So the idea of the singularity is, at that point, computers can now design themselves, right? They're smarter mm -hmm. than humans. So at that point, they can guide their own design, and they can guide their own evolution. And the speed at which they evolve and become better will be even faster, right? Now, now you've got a designer who's smarter than humans working on it. So, of course, you're applying exponential to exponential, and it's just going to go straight up um, through the roof. Um, at that point, the idea is because the AI, the artificial intelligence embodied in these machines, will be smarter than human intelligence, um, they will become the dominant intelligence on this planet, and they will take over from us uh, as the guiding um, force behind a human society. And, and that's the point of singularity, right? The singularity has arrived. Now uh, AI can take over its own design and evolution and leave us in the dust. And, and what happens after that point? Will we become parasitic on the artificial intelligence? Will we become somehow uploaded into the cloud to live with AI um, as gods, right? That's one vision. Uh, we will live in the cloud as gods. Um, or will something else happen? I mean, there are all kinds of dystopian as well as utopian visions of what will happen to us after the singularity. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting idea um, in speculative uh, fiction. Uh, and it's very, you know, it's, it generates a lot of ideas. And my stories, the set of stories that I wrote in this universe, focus both on the immediate aftermath of the singularity, meaning the moment when uploading becomes possible um, and we are, you know, we're now living in the cloud as gods, as well as far future implications of what would happen to us once we're turning to post-humans and gods essentially living in the cloud. What will happen to us, you know, a hundred years from now, 200, maybe a thousand. Um, what will happen to us then? Uh, so it's a very wide range of speculative speculative fiction, wide range of speculations and and, and ideas. Um, and uh, the show starts out by focusing on just the inflection point, the point at which uploading becomes possible, uh, and then it goes on from there. Uh, I'm super excited. Can't wait to um, uh, ha share the show with viewers. Um, I mean, I love the stories because I, you know, I wrote them and, and they were a very important part of my creative career. Uh, and now to see them uh, come to life uh, in this show, it's uh, it's really wonderful. Um, and uh, I've seen the show, the first season, uh, and it's awesome. So I can't wait to. Oh, that's uh, great. <laughs> That's I can't great. wait to uh, share it with viewers and readers. Yeah, I've seen the first two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> About five times. Okay, good. <laughs> it's with that explanation. It it actually helps because I got into the, you know, is this like a warning, like sort of a prediction? But now what you're saying, you're like 
excising what are the most important parts to humanity that you're evaluating. Like, is this important or not important? Is this important or is that not important? As you have that, you have these, these gods and then you have the humans and you have a few of these humans who have this uh, amazing ability with mathematics who can communicate and, and has some awareness of it. But you have to, you know, evaluate like what is really important or not important, and that's the de- that's the decision that are is being confronted on many of your stories, which is great. It's sort of the eternal question of all literature, um, especially sci-fi, really, as far as I'm concerned. You know, the proper study of mankind is man, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, this is this is the eternal question of all literature. All stories are fundamentally about. Who are we? Yeah. What makes us who we claim to be? Um, and uh, this pantheon is very much about that question. What makes somebody human? Um, and if we change the hardware of uh, of what it means to have a consciousness, does that actually change things? You know, if we're not embodied, what does that mean? If if we're capable of all these new things, what what does that mean? Uh, these are these are the questions that are interesting to me uh, because now you're forced to figure out who we are. And, and if we are not humans anymore and we're post-humans, what does that mean? You know, right. what, what, what does it mean for us to evolve into something new? No, that's, that's, I said talking to you makes it much more uh, significant what you actually wrote in, the, in these stories. You know, I think it's, I'm definitely anxious to see how AMC treats beyond the first two minutes of your of your story. <laughs> but it's probably even better that it is um, animation rather than real life just because of what you're talking about and to be able to transition from human to AI, you know, these gods in a cloud. Oh, I, I actually think animation is a fascinating experiment. So, you know, a couple of things I want to talk about here. Yeah. One is that using animation to tell a, a dramatic story there's not a, a long tradition of this here in here in the west we we don't have a long tradition of it uh we tend to view animation uh for better or worse as um uh, somehow not as good as live action and mm-hmm. we view it as as intended for children um now that is not true obviously universally uh, as a as a medium uh you know any fan of anime or manga can tell you that other cultures have been telling serious quote-unquote stories using animation since you know forever um well, you've got but, here this manner is way different than johnny quest when right I- <laughs> <laughs> sure sure <laughs> So for AMC to try something that has usually, you know, only be done in anime is deeply interesting to me. And art yeah. style is really interesting. It's refreshing. It's cool. Um, but here's something else that is interesting to me about animation. You know, not only is it a bold experimenting medium, animation has certain unique features that make it particularly well suited to telling a story like this. So as I mentioned, right, the story of the singularity is about what makes someone human. If you strip away bodies, if you strip away brains, and you, you're left with, quote-unquote, the mind and emotions alone, a disembodied consciousness in the cloud, that's a deep interrogation of what makes human beings human. Mm-hmm. Animation, you know, unlike film or TV, um, live action film or TV is also a way to boil down humanity to its essence, right? If you enjoy animation and you work in animation, you realize that once you start using animation instead of live action actors, there's a whole range of tools of expressing emotion that are just not available to you anymore. You don't realize this until you actually watch uh, a film or TV and then watch an animated show closely. But the amount of work that human actors can do, the degree to which they convey subtle emotions via their facial features, the tiniest movements of their of their muscles in their faces, it is impossible to capture that using state-of-the-art um, AI, much less, you know, animation. Mm-hmm. Um, the degree to which you can express emotions via facial movements with an actor it's just that's not possible in animation you just can't do it we we don't have that technology and we don't have the art we don't have it but now that you know you can no longer do that 
a whole new range of tools opens up to you. You can do camera angles that are impossible to achieve using live action. You can do scenes and staging and using transitions and montages and all sorts of effects in animation that are not doable in uh, live action. You can now lean into the stylized nature of your medium and really take advantage of animation, do things that are just not possible in animation. So it's a way to filter reality, to, to transform reality. Film and TV, in some ways, lean on the crutches. Live action film TV lean, leans on the crutch of uh, being very similar to reality as we experience it. So a lot of things are just left, you know, without um, necessarily having to be transformed artistically. So, for example, when you film a scene, you know, you actually have the option of putting real objects in that scene and without having to represent them in some way. Um, and so you have a lot of clutter, a lot of texture, a lot of reality just by default, because you're working with real objects. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're also constrained by that. You're constrained by real life physics. You're constrained by the way uh, objects persist. You're constrained by the fact that everyday experience is everyday experience. It's, it's still there. In animation, you can throw all of that out the window. You can make the world any way you like. You can introduce new laws of physics, new laws of, of, of motion. And when you're talking about uploading yourself into the cloud where everything is in fact new and you can make up the laws of physics any way you want in that cloud animation seems like a much more natural medium for this than live action yeah. so uh i was really excited because um you know not only did amc get the idea but the show creator uh craig silverstein who is an amazingly creative uh, smart uh, artist he really um leaned into the medium of animation and tried to create a world uh, that takes advantage of animation and to tell a story that is better. Because uh, the goal here is not to copy and, and ape live action. The goal here is to make something that live action can't do. And I think they succeeded. That's why it's so, uh, so wonderful. Which is great. And another factor too, you take a look at some of these more popular animation, even the, even the movies, you've got these actors, you're, you're talking about the facial expressions that the actors can actually put in something, but they also have their vocalization of mm -hmm. the narrative. And so when you have somebody who's a, a real professional who does the voice, you also, because of your association already, just the, the words themselves and the tone, the emotion um, from the way they're speaking will also help fill in the gaps on what you're seeing too. So you've got what you're saying there, but you also have now, because of your identification with those, that emotion, those words, that the music in the background, you know, here comes the violins and all of a sudden you feel this heavy emotion of, of loss when you, when the caricature looks over, see the, the, the little doggy just haven't been hit by a car. You know, you still feel that, that emotion. So that's a fact as well, which when I was listening again, using my comparative, which I started perhaps incorrectly, a Johnny Quest, it's come a long ways now <laughs> where you've got, you know, real actors conveying real emotions and the recording, the sound quality is way different now in the 2020s than what it was in the 1970s, you know, when, um, when Haji was there saving Johnny from all of his, his uh, problems and stuff. So... Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, AMC went and got an all-star cast. Uh, voice yeah, cast that's what I was impressed show, with when I saw the list which, of the cast. Which I loved, you know, I mean, beyond the fact that uh, it's great to have name recognition to get people to watch the show. I also really appreciate the fact that these are great artists who wield their voices as such wonderful emotional instruments to express um, the subtleties of the emotional drama. Um, and I think that's what's so key about this, right? In, in some senses, again, it's it's the same story. What makes us human? What What is the essence of someone? It's so interesting to me that we can, like you say, evoke the essence of a complete person just by mm -hmm. a voice. You know, voice such a powerful uh, instrument, uh, just like facial expressions, the, the degree That's to right. which we can express so much with so little. Um, humans are really wonderful creatures. It's, it's yeah. amazing what we can do. Well, it's amazing just how, like, this podcast now is will be listened to by about one and a half million people. 
who would have thought, you know, however many years ago that podcasts would become such a, an amazing medium of, uh, of communication, you know? It's so, true. When they first came out, people were, you know, bemused and befuddled. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, what is this the idea exactly. of, it, it's like radio, but not radio. It's, it's just, what, what is this? Why would people want this? And of course, yeah. you know, the medium has evolved and become an amazingly flexible tool for storytelling. You know, there are fictional podcasts, unfictional interviews, report, reporting, everything. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's incredible how the entire medium has exploded into this uh, really wondrous way of, of, of expressing who are and telling stories. Yeah. Now, you've, you're known for having developed this uh, subgenre called silk punk fantasy. So what is it and what isn't it? And how did that evolve? Yeah. Um, so silk punk was a term I came up with to describe the Dandelion Dynasty books, which, you know, is the longest thing I've ever written and something that ended up taking 10 years of my life. And it's the thing I'm most proud of, short of, uh, you know, without beating around the bush about it. So um, what what is Soak Punk? Well, it's, um, I wrote the Dandelion Dynasty um, as this very strange thing that I hadn't seen done before. What I wanted to do was to um, find a new way to talk about modernity. Right. We, we talk about the modern world in a particular way. We have a particular story about what the modern world is. And our references about the modern world are predominantly based around, interestingly enough, um, a set of assumptions from classical antiquity in the West. Right. This is something that we actually don't think a lot about, but it's true. Modernity feels very translated to modern people because so much of modernity is based on the Renaissance which is an, a conscious effort to connect the world we live in to the Greco-Roman classical past, which is interesting to me, right? Mm -hmm. So if you examine the vocabulary of modernity, the vocabulary of law, of, of biology, of physics, of science, we rely incredibly on Greek and Latin roots. Uh, it's incredible that's the case, right? You can, you know, we don't have Esperanto, but the language of science actually is pretty universal. Why? Because whatever language you you um, you use to uh, discuss science, the roots of the modern words that we use are shared. They're drawn from Greek and Latin roots. Whenever right. you talk about atoms, about ology, you know, you talk about all these things, they are from Greek and Latin roots. You so, read any dictionary, any dictionary where I look up, because I'm everything when you look at the etymology, it's always Greek and yep. Latin. We, the, the modern words that we use for describing things that have never existed before are based on Greek and Latin roots. It's really interesting to me that instead of relying on vernacular roots, modernity is constructed using antiquity. So to me, this is what I call, you know, Greco-Roman punk. Right. We, we take Greco-Roman roots and we, we repurpose it for something else to construct modernity. That is interesting to me. So we actually live in a Greco-Roman punk world. So I was like, OK, that's a very interesting way to think about modernity. Is there another way to think about it? And I thought I said, well, right, as I mentioned to you earlier, my thing has always been about transforming what is accepted, what is standard into something new so we can see what the essence of right. it is, right? So I'm like, well, let's think about other potential ways of reconstructing modernity. What if instead of using Greco-Roman roots, what if we use classical East Asian roots, right? What if, imagine a world in which, right, a country like the United States does not discuss its own politics in the past by reference to classical antiquity of the West. What if instead of talking about senators and crossing the Rubicon and talking about, um, you know, our military as though they are Roman um, legions uh, and talk about our wars as though our analogy of Roman wars, right? What if we don't see the United States as a new Rome? What if we see a modern country like the United States as an analog of Han Dynasty China? What if we do that? What if we imagine the American empire not as an analog of the Roman empire, but as an analog of what the Chuhan contention was about? What if we do that, right? So that was the root of what I wanted to do here. So I called this Soak punk, because, you know, we live in a Greco-Roman punk world uh, because we repurpose antiquity to describe modernity. What if we can repurpose uh, classical East Asian antiquity and, and use that to reimagine modernity? What would that look like? 
right? Um, now, notably, this is not about alternate history. I'm not talking about alternate history here. Uh, I'm talking about a metaphorical concept of how we reimagine ourselves. My point here is, in the modern world, we tend to have this automatic assumption that we can reimagine ourselves as modern versions of the Romans. It's just a thing that we do constantly. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, let's let's set that narrative aside. Let's do something different. Let's try to reimagine the modern world as using the vocabulary and the roots and the philosophical foundations and the mechanistic traditions of classical East Asian antiquity. What if that were the foundation of the Renaissance. What would a modernity feel like then? So that's what Soap Punk is about. It's where I use the roots of classical East Asian antiquity, whether it's technology, whether it's material culture, whether it's philosophy, whatever. I take these things and I recombine them in the same way we use Greek and Latin roots to talk about modernity. I use these roots, recombine them from East Asia and use them to talk about modernity, the world we live in. I talk about all the things that we're obsessed with. What is equality? What is what does it mean to have rights? What does it mean to question the existence of divinity? What does it mean to rely on your own imagination? What does it mean to innovate? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to re- connect, reinterrogate, reimagine all of modernity through this alternative lens. And what lessons do you learn? What ends up being critical to the sense of modernity? What ends up being ancillary? What is um, this other way of being modern about? And I had so much fun with it. Um, you know, this was, as you can imagine, trying to do such a thing to reimagine modernity mm -hmm. using the alternative vocabulary and grammar is very hard. Um, you know, it, 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 it makes you realize how many things you take for granted. Just the fact that, you know, uh, it reminds me of an exercise that somebody did a few years ago where instead of writing um, uh, just a normal paragraph uh, using all the Greek and Latin derived words that we have, what if we try to rewrite and reinvent new words based on Anglo-Saxon roots? And it was such a fascinating exercise, right? Instead of, you know, talking about biology, whatever, it's, 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 it's living knowings, right? It's, it's, it's about knowings. Um, and instead of talking about atoms, we talk about moats. Uh, and, and it's just so fascinating to rewrite an entire subject uh, encyclopedia entry or something like that using only Anglo-Saxon rooted words. Um, it really makes you rethink about the world we live in and how much we take for granted and how much we let fade into the background. I found that such a beautiful exercise. Then um, essentially, you know, my silk punk epic fantasy is like that. It's about reimagining the modern world using these classical East Asian roots so that all of us now can reimagine and rethink and re-see modernity anew. That was what I wanted to do. Wow, that's amazing. I have not read that, so it just got added. One, that's one of the pluses is that I read so many different authors now because I, I refuse to do a podcast interview with any author that have not read their most recent book or one of their recent books. Just, if anything else, it's just basic manners. But it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um I'm, that's that sounds fascinating to me on that because I'm I'm definitely I'm, I was very impressed with your vocabulary, you know, and and I see now that you explain this why you use why you use one word instead of the more conventional word, and now I understand why because some authors are just are very um, ostentatious with their word use, and you weren't you know you're. It's an exact right word, but then now I understand why you used one word instead of another, and that makes sense now. You know, I, I did spend some time in the dictionary getting through, mostly just getting through your bio, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> where you're, you know, talking about, okay, 5G I can deal with, and what's this GPT-3? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, let's look it up, and that pulled me into a hole. I had to extricate it's myself. It's a wonderful that world. <laughs> yeah, we, we live in an amazing age of wonder and magic. It really is so cool. Yeah, yeah. So um, you originally were um, made our acquaintance um, way back when you were published in volume 
19 and 2003 in the Owen Hubbard Presents Rise to Future, Volume 19. And you had your story, Gossamer, which I reread yesterday, also in preparation for this, where you're paying considerable homage to Emily Dickinson. Um, mm-hmm. So how did you first discover and get involved with uh, Writers of the Future? So I don't remember exactly, uh, but I, I, I will tell you what it was like. Uh, sure. Back in the late 90s and early 2000s when I was trying to, you know, get into writing and, and mm-hmm. pursue this as a, as a serious artistic pursuit. Um, like many other writers, we were seeking information, anything we could find on the internet. And there were tons of writers groups discussing how to break out, how to get published, how to hone your craft, and so on and so forth. And a persistent topic that came up over and over again is Writers of the Future contest. And and this was something that everybody wanted to enter because the idea was that not only would you get published in a pro-paying anthology, but you would also get a chance to attend the workshop and study with some of the great masters of, of uh, speculative genres and to really learn. Um, you know, these days there are many more workshops for people to choose from, but at the time, the idea of being able to attend such a workshop was, you know, incredible uh, as, a, as a beginner to be able to connect with pros and to get a um, a chance to learn from them in the sense. Uh, I, I would say that opportunity to learn from the pros was to me more attractive even than just any payment I would have gotten uh, as a result of participating. I, I didn't care as much about that, uh, but that opportunity to, to learn from the pros, I really thought that was very cool. Yeah. So then, uh, so you went to the workshop and that that one there was taught by uh, Tim Powers and, uh, and Kathy Wentworth, Katie Wentworth, who unfortunately passed uh, some years ago. So what do you remember most from that from that week of the the workshop and the awards event and um I guess oh, I, I, Hills? I have so many amazing memories. I mean it was the first time I got to spend extensive time in Hollywood. It was incredible to walk around. I mean, so just to set the scene, right? I mean, it's wow, what an experience. It's I had never gone to a workshop like that. I mean, I've taken creative writing classes and so on, but nothing like that. Um, and the workshop was super in- intense. We were expected to write a story in 24 hours. That's that's the way it was. Um, and Tim, you know, uh, the way it worked is, you know, in the workshop, Tim came up to each of us and pointed and uh, picked up an object or uh, pointed to a random object in the room and said, this is the seed for your story. Now go write the story and come back in 25 hours and we will read your story. <laughs> That's it. Uh, and he he came to me and, and he picked up an ice cube in the glass that I was using and said, this is this is yours. You, you go tell a story about this ice cube. Um, and I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I, 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 I had it was it was I was completely flabbergasted. It was just. I don't know what to do. Um, and then we were told to go out there into Hollywood and interview people, to observe people, to to get story ideas, to really observe how humans behave. To hey, it was an incredible experience. I mean, I I went on to Hollywood. I looked at the the stars. <laughs> I, I looked at humanity all around me in its total wonder, complexity, and and I tried to think about how to write a story, how to tell a story. I went back to my room with my roommate and we we tried to encourage each other. Oh, it was an unbelievable experience. And I still have wonderful memories of it because the story that I wrote for that workshop in 24 hours called State Change um, is in my first collection. So if you get my collection, The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories, the the I think it's the second story in the entire collection. That's how much I loved it. I put it right up there in the front. Uh, State Change. Uh, it came out of that workshop, um, and uh, it's a story about an ice cube, and it's one of my favorite stories ever. Um, it, in some ways, solidified my aesthetic for speculative fiction, which is about making the metaphorical real. Um, yeah, so, you know, talk about memories. I have a tangible thing right there in my collection that I <laughs> I point to every time. Every time I look at it, I remember Tim, I remember KD, I remember... Um, Kevin J. Anderson, I remember everybody who was there with me during that week and, and how much I learned uh, from my 
you know, my fellow um, uh, workshop participants, from the instructors, uh, from everybody we got to meet. Um, it was uh, an unforgettable experience. Yeah, there were some great uh, winners that uh, that year as well. That Jay Lake. Jay yeah. Lake, he became a good friend. He passed, unfortunately, but he was uh, yeah. just an amazing, nice person. I know Mike Cole has uh, done very yep. well. So I don't know if, are you still in touch with any of the people? Yeah, totally. Mike and I were just uh, at a workshop a couple uh, uh, years ago, and we were reminiscing. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. Now, one of the things that gets done in the workshop is you go over various uh, essays that were written by Owen Hubbard back in the 30s and 40s when he was also helping out aspiring writers, which was the precursor to what you have with the Writers of the Future. Anything in particular that you remember from that? Now, um, I don't know if this essay was actually specifically taught during the workshop or not, but uh, this is an essay by Hubbard that I've always loved, and I, I do think it was probably in the packet yeah, of essays. It's been in got. the workshop all along, yeah. Yeah, um, it's called uh, Magic Out of a Hat, and in it, uh, Hubbard describes the experience of being told to tell a story about a random object that his editor pointed to him and then he describes how he did it and, and of course made a huge impression on me because it is what Tim Powers did to me. You know, he pointed yeah. to an object that I had to tell a story. And Hubbard, you know, this is a wonderful essay. Uh, Hubbard walks you through how he thinks and as a writer and how he came up with the idea. And, and there are so many wonderful little gems in there. He talks about how, you know, he he, he makes you aware of how artificial the craft of fiction is and yet at the same time how deeply revelatory of of the human condition it is he repeatedly he he points out this is a very this is an art we're practicing here right so fiction is about art it's about artifice it's about artificiality it's about crafting things it's not about reporting the world just as it is which is often very random it's about shaping it and yet in that very shaping of it it matches the way we ourselves try to make sense of the universe humans are storytellers naturally we try to make sense of the randomness of the universe and that's what he's getting and he's getting at the idea that fiction feels true precisely because it mirrors this natural process we all go through ourselves of making sense of the randomness of the universe. It's pulling magic out of the hat. And then the way he tries to, you know, walk you through how he does this, and there's little bits of wisdom he drops along the way. For example, he says, look, you know, you got to keep on thwarting the reader's expectation. You got to keep on withholding the answer from him or her. But at some point, the reader is not going to put up with it anymore. At some point, you got to stop, right? Hubbard says, look, this is the key. This is the key that a lot of people fail at. You keep on going, keep on going, but at some point, your audience will not put up with it anymore. You got to know when that point is, and you got to stop right before then. That's how you make a story satisfying and awesome and make people want to read. That's how you avoid the disease that a lot of writers suffer from, which is they go out for too long. That's that's what it is. You got to stop. You got to know when to stop. And then he talks about how you got to close the story properly. You got to give people that interesting, satisfying twist, even if it's just a simple little thing. You got to do it. Um, and, 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 and he talks about how, you know, this is, this is, uh, here's also the other thing. Uh, a lot of writing essays can be very um, inspiring instructional but not fun meaning that you know reading them and you feel like you just have to do all these things it's, it's work but one of the things that Harper tried to do in that essay is to make it feel like you writing is actually fun you're 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 getting he's trying to get you back in touch with this very foundational drive for telling the story why do people enjoy sitting in a bar and telling stories to strangers why do people enjoy listening to stories why do people enjoy asking questions you know what what is what is this obsession we have with made up stuff well it's because it's fun it's fundamentally about having fun uh and over and over again the essay he makes just the reading of the essay itself fun so that you understand how the story is about fun anyway i find the essay to be very very uh useful cool and and, and thoughtful uh and i'm sure i'm not alone a lot of people have uh probably uh gotten themselves very attached to that essay uh, because it is, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, still useful all these years later. Uh, the craft of fiction and the craft of what it means to tell a story, that hasn't changed. 
Yeah. Orson Scott Card, that's one of his favorite essays too. And he did a whole, mm. I did a whole podcast interview with him on this essay because he just, he really likes it a lot. We've got this um, online writing course that we created with Orson Scott Card, Tim Powers, and uh, Dave Wolverton, who sadly passed away earlier this year. But they each did individual essays on the, all the different parts of writing uh, short stories. And it doesn't apply just to science fiction or fantasy, but they took some of the key basics and made it so that everybody can get it. And it, it, it just totally raised the bar on entries to the contest when we did that. Um, That's wonderful. Yeah, because we get now thousands of entries every quarter to the contest, which is way more than what it was when um, you did it back then. Oh, yeah. I remember uh, that was, uh, I mean, I entered for many quarters. <laughs> and it was really <laughs> such a such an experience, just uh, every quarter sending your story in and just sort of hoping um, that you would get in. Uh, and this was back at the time when you were mailing submissions in, you know, this was yeah. before electronic now submissions. It's online. Actually- yeah, we have entries now from... You know, over 175 countries now. We have, so far, our the person has entered the most times. Won a few years ago, he had entered 47 times before finally winning. But, that is um, impressive. Yeah, he just persisted. He d- he does really well in, on paranormal. He writes. He's very big in ufology and has several books there since having won. But he's um, it's very interesting on that. So, any particular impact then that Rise of Future had on your career that you can look back on? I think the most important things are that, you know, I established these connections, like with Kevin J. Anderson and Tim Powers that persisted, you know, for years afterwards. These are, you know, connections that permanently, you know, affected my career. But uh, the most tangible thing probably is the fact that I learned that I could write a story in 24 hours. Uh, And I've had to do something like that a few times since then. I don't recommend it. It's generally not the way to go. Uh, But knowing that you can do it is very important. Um, Knowing that you're able to come up with a story and just do it and and that you can, in fact, practice the craft and that you can, that that is repeatable, that it's not a fluke that you managed to write a story that you like once. Uh, That was very important. That's good. And one thing, too, about that, which I've found many, many times from other past winners, they sold that story they wrote in 24 hours. It's not that you just wrote something and it's tripe. It's actually good. You know, that that spontaneous creativity can actually, you know, play out and it's and it's good. Mm-hmm. It's not just something that I did my exercise. You know, you actually mm-hmm. have something that's good. I mean, you're in an environment there, too, where you've got so many other creatives around you and, and so much support and people wanting you to like succeed you know that's one thing too you have there is by the time you won the contest you're treated as an equal you know the judges don't see you as i'm teaching you now they're actually you know they're working with you as someone now as as a compadre it was very important to uh have had that experience Uh, it's definitely important to um you know as always it's really about learning about who you are um, yeah. as, as a writer, as a person. Uh, and that was what Dunning Environment was about. It's, it's not so much about tangible, specific right. um, things that you can put on a resume. It's really about what you learn about yourself. And that sure. ended up being the most important part. That's great. Now, um, I think you're the only one that's actually won, like I said in the beginning, the, the um, Hugo and the uh, Nebula and the World Fantasy Award for... Um, for the paper, for one book, for a paper manette. For a single piece of fiction, yeah. But you've also then won, what, three Hugos now and a Nebula as well as um, the World Fantasy. So what's that been like in terms of that type of recognition? And of course, the um, writers of being published in Rise of the Future. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, you know, the awards are interesting. I mean, uh, you know, y- you definitely put them up there because they are a thing that people pay attention when people know nothing about you it's it's somewhat important to have something that people can just sort of attach to your name and say oh okay at least you know i, I sort of see something that he's done yeah. um I, I will say that uh in the long term um i think that the awards didn't they both ended up being more interesting and also less important than i thought they would be sure uh, you know uh, i think everybody can tell you that they're not that important in the grand scheme of things, because it turns out that your own satisfaction with yourself is about whether you like the stories that you write, right. not so much about what other people think. And and your ultimate artistic 
joy is really about whether you can invent your own vision and then carry it through as opposed to, again, um, outside validation. So that's, you know, well known. But what I didn't quite realize is that um, it would end up being um, something that got me much more engaged with fandom and and with the community of science fiction as a whole. Um, I mean, these awards are done by real people. They're voted on by, you know, real readers. And they're, um, and and recognizing that it's a, it's a tangible way for you to feel the, 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 the community. And I enjoyed um, voting the awards because it gives me an excuse and motivation to read stuff that I otherwise may just be like, well, I'm so busy, I don't want to do it. But I'm like, I, I'm a member of the fandom, and I this, these awards are important. It's a good way for us to support each other, to appreciate each other, to show um, our engagement with the community. And I want to read more. I want to mm-hmm. discover more voices. I want to support new writers. And so it ended up being a great way to uh, make me remember how much people supported me. You know, when the Paper Menageries won all those awards, that was the year when I was a newbie on the scene. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't understand fandom. I, I barely went to cons. And suddenly all of these writers who were wonderful, like Rachel Swirsky, you know, were talking about my story and saying, this is why it's important to me. The story really worked for me. And this is why. And, and I couldn't believe it. It was a huge, it was a real wonderful demonstration and, and, and reminder of how important um, communities and how you are part of this larger conversation mm-hmm. among writers and readers to see strangers, people I had no connection with whatsoever, talking about my story and saying and passionately debating my story versus other stories versus other stories that people should consider. Oh, so cool to, to be part of that. Uh, and that's why I always try to emulate afterwards. And I try to talk about new writers. I try to boost voices that I think should be heard. I try to participate and try to vote um, for writers who I think have, have, you know, haven't been recognized enough. Uh, and that was wonderful. So to me, that's the real long-term goal. Right. You know, it, it made me engage with fandom and made me feel part of the community. That's what the awards ultimately were really about for me. Um, I don't particularly care about, you know, whether people think the awards are good or bad or what whatnot. I mean, once you've won the award, in the long term, it doesn't really matter. Um, everybody can tell you that. But the process of, of being engaged with fandom, of participating in the awards, of voting on them, that ended up being super awesome for me. So good. that was cool. Okay, that makes sense. And that's, that's, that's a good answer, too. Um, and it is important, I think, to uh, embrace the community you know, that uh, one's, one's living and operating in. Now, as, as a writer, just... Real briefly, if you can just, just describe what your arc as an author has been. Weren't you or aren't you uh, also a, a lawyer? Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, I'm still a lawyer. I don't practice anymore, but I, I still have my license and I keep it up to date. Um, so, uh, I've had a very strange and <laughs> uh, long and winding career <laughs> As it turns out, uh, it's not a model career. Uh, you know, it's it's the sort of thing where um, if I put it in a story, people will be like, this is very messy. <laughs> what is your arc? Your arc is not very clear here. <laughs> um, and that's true. Reality is like that. I was um, a software engineer first, uh, and that was my first career. And uh, then eventually I went to law school and became a lawyer. Uh, and I practiced corporate law actually for a number of years before I switched over to litigation consulting and I became a technologist uh, working in high tech cases and essentially an expert witness. And uh, and then only a few years ago did I finally get the chance to go full time uh, as a writer. Um, but throughout all these careers, when I was a software engineer, lawyer, litigation consultant, whatever, I never stopped writing. I, I kept on writing. Now, I didn't always try to um, submit. And there was a period of time when I actually sort of stopped writing altogether because I just felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. But eventually I recovered. But throughout that process, um, over two decades, you know, I had the same kind of um, story that almost all writers go through. You submit, you submit, you hone your craft, you get rejected constantly, um, and then you start 
being rejected a little less. <laughs> and you start realizing what this is actually about. I mean, for me, the revelation came, um, again, with almost all things, with rediscovering the joy of doing what it is that you do. Um, I, I think we underestimating our society, the power of joy and the importance of joy. We often speak about things in a very instrumentalist manner. We talk about being productive. We talk about security. We talk about um, trying to have uh, to bring value to, to your employer. And we talk about these things. But what we don't talk about enough is simple joy. Um, and, and I think that was something that I had to rediscover for myself, realizing that joy is what propelled my interesting storytelling in the first place, and that joy is what made writing interesting to me. Remembering those things uh, carried me through some of the hardest moments when I wasn't selling at all, when I wasn't getting any readers, when I couldn't make anything work. Um, and it turns out that, you know, as a writer, I, I realized that all of us are in the same boat, which is... When you're a writer, you start out thinking that you have to learn one way of being professional. You have to learn how to write like a professional. You have to learn the craft. We speak about the craft as though it were one thing, as though there's some sort of magical language you have to learn. And once you've learned how to write that magical language, you will be given the keys to the city. Um, and it turns out that's a totally bad metaphor to think about it. Um, you don't learn the craft you learn to discover your own craft. That's the goal, and that's the key. Every single great writer ends up seeing the world a little differently. And because they see the world in their unique, unrepeatable, unduplicable way, they have to invent a new language to describe it, right? So Emily Dickinson did not write in something called 19th century English, right? She had to invent her own language. When you see an Emily Dickinson poem, you know it's hers because she writes in a way that no one else does. You see E. Cummings, you know, he has invented a whole new way of doing it. You read a Tim Powers novel, he has invented his own way of doing it. You read a story from Charlie Jane Anders, she has invented her own way of talking about the world. Every single writer worth reading has to do that. You do not learn to speak in cliches. You learn to invent a whole new way of observing, of describing, of inventing, of living in the world. And that is what you do as a writer. You learn your own craft. Not the craft, but your own craft. Um, and that's, that's what it is. Your own craft is the tool, the spaceship you've you will, by which you travel the universe and by which you um, connect with other minds and visit other places. And, and this is what readers enjoy. They enjoy coming to your own spaceships, your own invention, learn your own language, learn to see the world that only you can see and, and mm -hmm. see the world they live in, in through the lens that only you get to wear. That's what being a writer is actually about. It's about inventing that own, your own thing. Um, and that's what my career was about. It's about slowly coming to understand that's the case, trying to work on my thing. You know, I told you I spent a decade working in my silk punk epic fantasy because right. that was my language. That was my world. That was my spaceship, my fantasy land, my Narnia, my <laughs> uh, Middle Earth. Um, it, it, it takes you that long, uh, sometimes much longer to, to invent that. And that's what I did. That's that's really good on that. Now, you made allusion to something where it was really rough at one point. So was there a point where you um, obstacles were seemed like they were too great? You're ready to like throw in the uh, typewriter? Yeah, absolutely. That, that was when I um, lost sight of what writing was actually about. Um, I wrote this one story that I thought was very good and I kept on submitting it and nobody would buy it. Uh, you know, I went through every market possible. The, the the ones that pay pro rates, I ran out of those markets. And then I started submitting to the semi-pros, I ran out of those, I submitted to the token markets, I ran out of those, I submitted to markets that pay nothing, I ran out of those. Um, I just, I would, I, I, I ended up attaching my identity to that one story. 
And if the one story wasn't validated by others, I felt like I wasn't being validated by others. And that was the mistake, right? That was, that was where I went wrong. I lost sight of what writing was actually about. I thought it was about external validation for this one thing I did, um, rather than realizing that writing is really about this eternal, endless journey of discovering the world only you can see and learning how better and better and better you can get at expressing, describing, and conveying that world to everyone else. Um, what I should have done was to stop and just write another story. I mean, you know, I, I think uh, somebody <laughs> said to me that 99% of writing problems can be solved by just writing another story. And it is true. Whenever you feel stuck or unhappy or unappreciated, the answer is always to just write another story uh, and to realize that your identity is not tied up with one story. It's, it's not. It's it's tied up with your entire process. It's tied mm -hmm. up with this entire journey that you're going on. You, you're you not that one thing. You're not one artifact. How can anybody be judged by one thing? It's it's silly. You, you just keep on going. It's, it's not about winning, losing, getting recognition, getting awards, getting readers, whatnot, for one thing. It's not. It's about the fact that you keep on going and you keep on pursuing your vision and you keep on honing your language and you keep on reinventing um, that one way of seeing the world that only you can have. Mm -hmm. um, and and I didn't, I, you know, I went through this dark night of the soul, if you will, where I wasn't submitting and writing anymore. I gave up until, um, you know, <laughs> Uh, this is funny, uh, but an anthology came along that was explicitly looking for stories that had been rejected a bazillion times. Um, and it's called <laughs> thought, crime, thought Crime Experiments, and they took my story. And, and you know, um, the lesson I took from that is not that try, 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 and you will eventually succeed. That, that's not the lesson at all. The lesson right. is you need to stop looking for acceptance for the one thing you did. You need to just keep on going and do other things because ultimately it's about your own satisfaction and your own joy in your journey that matters, that will drive you, not uh, whether somebody else is going to appreciate your work or not. It's just not. Um, and until you understand that, you're never going to find joy in what you do. Wow. That's really, really good advice on that one there. So, um, as I knew would happen, we're pretty much out of time here. I just, I got another page here that I could go through, but um, another day, another time. So um, for someone who's not familiar with, with Ken Lu, where do they go to, to, to find you? Okay. So uh, I'll answer this in two ways. Uh, and what's, a, is, what's a Ken, Ken Lu 101 book? What's the primer? That they right, should... exactly. That's what I'll do. So if you have never read anything by me, um, uh, what I would recommend is you pick up my collection, my first collection called The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories. Um, it's a it's a collection of my early short fiction, and it's all over the place. Um, it's got all sorts of genres packed into it. I think what's so great about it is it's it's a sampler. You read it, and and each story is very short, so you don't have to invest a huge amount of time. And you can tell whether I'm good company or not after a little bit. You read through two or three stories, and you'll know, okay, you know, I like the way Ken sees the world, and I may want to read more. And if you don't, you can just say, all right, that's enough. I'm going to stop here. Um, you know, he's a nice guy, I'm sure, but uh, he's just not really my kind of writer, and that's totally fine. So that's the book I would recommend. It's all over the place. It's diverse. It's it's interesting. It's got a ton of different types of stories in it. So hopefully something will resonate with you. And it's a great introduction to the sort of thinking that I do. Um, and only if you enjoy that, um, you know, and then I would say, you know, if you also like epic fantasy and world building and technology and modernity and all the stuff I'm talking about, then maybe go read the Dungeon Dynasty. Uh, you know, that's the that's the longest thing I've ever written and the thing that I'm most proud of. Um, and it's, um, it's a very different thing. You know, I've written very short stories and also very long things. So you, you, you got the whole gamut right there. Um, and if you want to follow, um, um, follow my work and just sort of get updates, um, you can come to my website, which is Ken Liu, K-E-N-L-I-U dot name, N-A-M-E. 
And uh, you can also go to canleo.com, and that just redirects to the same place. But I like .name; it feels more personal. <laughs> uh, and you uh, and you can you can uh, check out my bibliography, my short fiction, and you can sign up for my newsletter on there to get updates. Um, and finally, if you're not much of a reader or you're the sort who wants to read only after you've seen something else, check out Pantheon. It, comes from AMC and it's part of AMC Plus, uh, premieres September 1st. Um, and that will give you a good sense of, again, the type of stories that I enjoy telling. And if you like the show, you know, pick up the book, um, The Hidden Girl and Other Stories. That's the second collection from which those stories were taken. Good. Real pleasure talking to you, John. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. I also want to thank Carnation for sponsoring this show. Carnation not only tastes good, they have good taste. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard, to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Ken. Thank you very much.